and the new changeover to nothing but easy listening smooth. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I am so happy to be speaking with Taya Albrecht via technology. Taya, thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, T. This is such a delight. Well, thanks for joining this virtual audio space, being part of this. And you, you're part of the Zell Visiting Writers series um, this this year. I, I wish, I wish we could be doing this in person, um, oh, but it's such a, a strange time. How how are you, Taya, these days during the time of COVID? You know, I I um I think like so many people, um, I've I've found a lot of solace in in routine, um, and I, I mean, for, very fortunately, um, everyone in my family so far has been healthy, um, oh and uh, yeah, no, we, we I think we we feel really like we're pretty we're pretty dispersed, so um, there was a lot of concern about how the different places we were living were going to be um, handling. Um, the pandemic. Uh, my husband and I uh, were in Wyoming at the start of it, and so that's where we sort of um, quarantined, um, which was, you know, it's a it's an empty place, and um, so we were lucky enough to be able to go outside um, quite often and, and and enjoy the outdoors and um, sort of make our own very small world, which which then included a. A puppy, uh, an eight-week-old puppy, at the start of COVID. So that's what we did this 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 quarantine season. We we raised a dog and. and oh, Taya, yeah. what um, what kind of puppy and what's the pup's name? He is an English Springer Spaniel. Um, he's a tricolor, and uh, his name is Gulliver, but he answers to Gully. Oh. <laughs> You know what? We could do the whole. Let's just talk about Gully. Talk about the dog. I know it's. I, I. You don't understand how quickly I became one of these people who just only wants to talk about the dog. And when people ask me like, "What? What's going on in your life?" I'm like, "Well, you should see this new trick he's learned." And I catch myself, you know. Um, but it's also about finding joy, and this pup Gully seems like a, a bringer of joy. He is. That's that's so well put. He really, really is. He's um, he's mischievous and um, uh, you know quite unpredictable sometimes. But he has been he has been a real um, touchstone, I think, for us in, in this time because it, it gave us something to focus on that was um, that was growing, you know, and, and was growing up, and and you could see progress with him every day and. Um, they grow so fast and, and, and it's also overwhelming and terrifying. And so it, it, it gave us, a, a, a something to, to orient our lives around. And, and so in that regard, it was amazing. And then he's also just like a giant goofball and, and, um, uh, we'll get into all kinds of scrapes and yeah, it was, it was, it was nice. I miss his little puppy self already. He's eight months old now. And it's like, 
grown dog almost. That's oh. a shame. <laughs> oh, well, I wonder. It, it, it really, it doesn't surprise me that you have such a, um, a lovely pup, Taya, be- because it feels like one of the things that I'm, I'm so excited to, to have this, this opportunity to talk with you about Inland, your latest novel, Out with Random House, because it seems like as a writer and now as a human being talking to you, <laughs> not that writers aren't human beings, but sometimes there's the writer self and the right. person and the, um, but it's, you seem to have such a, a tenderness for animals, which in Inland, it comes through in the character of Burke the camel yeah <laughs> well thank you for saying that I, I i i really appreciate it i i yeah no it's um it's strange i i i grew up with only one animal in the house we we grew up with um with a dog um and we didn't know like the family adored this dog right and we there were so many things that we didn't know about raising dogs including the fact that um you're not supposed to feed them chocolate like like which everybody knows um and my grandfather um when when he was uh, sort of in, entering his his older years became very obsessed with sort of this idea of healthy eating and he um so he would have his like dining rituals his dietary rituals and and he'd drink a, a big glass of red wine every day and then right after it he would eat a square of baking chocolate and the dog had a tendency to beg and so this dog for I think 12 years of its life ate a square of baking chocolate no. every day, every day of its life, every day of his life. And, um, and we were just like, you know, it's good for him. It's good. It's healthy. And I'm sure the dog was, you know, you could have dropped the nuke on him and he would have been fine. Like I, I have no idea. What, I have no idea how, how this was possible. I suppose they, um, they develop a, a tolerance, but, but, um, just, <laughs> he was also, it's not like he was like a great Pyrenees or anything. He was a toy poodle, you know, like a square of baking. <laughs> the story gets better. Oh yeah. And you also like, I mean, you did preface it with, I think the dog was long lifed, right? Yeah. So- yeah. It was this long living dog that everyone adored. And, you know, he went with us everywhere we went when, when we, when we left Yugoslavia and we traveled to, to Cyprus and Egypt. And he, um, he, he had a, he had a rich, uh, uh, travel life. And also it seemed a rich interior life as well. Um, as he wondered to himself, what are these people doing to me? He didn't, you know, he didn't have a crate to travel in. So he just traveled in sort of like a toolbox that we cut a window into. I mean, I'm, I'm not <laughs> Yeah. Um, and- that makes sense, though. <laughs> it does, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we do what we need to with what we have at that moment. <laughs> it's it's so true. And, like, with the knowledge that we that we have and, and this sort of assumption that, like, well, this must be all right. You know, like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be all right. And I think that um, – so I'm so sorry. You asked me about animals, and I went off on this, on this tangent oh. about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> no, Taya, seriously, we could really talk about this. And maybe that is just a clue that – Maybe, maybe I need to do like a, another, a sub podcast of <laughs> only talking about animals and very specifically often, most usually dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, I'd, I'd listen to, 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 to that all day, every day. You know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a real treat to get to think and talk about it. But, 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 you know, I, I think that having been raised in a house that, 
had a tendency to anthropomorphize an animal and then sort of growing up with nature shows and going to the zoo and sort of this this notion of um, the animal as um, an, uh, an entity who, who of, of any animal is like an entity of uh, emblematic of, of its um, time or its uh, uh, place of origin or, you know, like we told a lot of stories and I heard a lot of stories about animals and we had a tendency in, in my household to anthropomorphize them, whether they were living with us or not. And, and I think that this just sort of what it's, it's, it's never not been part of my storytelling. And the minute an animal shows up in a story I'm reading, um, I'm hooked. And, and the minute an animal shows up in a story I'm writing, I, I know I'm on the right track and it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a compulsion. I don't know. <laughs> and, and so how a lovely compulsion. Um, and so how did it happen for inland because did you, had you researched and found this camel core as a curiosity or were you writing Nora and suddenly you were then presented with a camel or yeah, how did it, how did it work Taya for you? That's a great question. And, um, and, and I think that the, the camels were the way into this story for me. I, um, I had, I had written a Western. It took a really long time between The Tiger's Wife and, and Inland, during which I was writing a lot, but not finding that thing. You know, I think that, um, I think you can always feel it when you walk into a project that is, that is going to bind itself up in your life and, and, and um, you know, take time and take a certain amount of energy and, and emotional integrity that is going to sort of spit you out on the other side as a, as a different person, as a changed person. Yes. Um, and you can, you can feel it when it happens. And for a long time I was writing, but that feeling wasn't happening. You know, I wrote, um, books, like I wrote two whole books and, and, and another half of one. Um, and, uh, I had sort of become obsessed with the American West and, and its mythologies and, and, um, the tension between its, its mythos and its reality. Um, and I wrote this Western about, um, doctors in the wild West, um, which was really interesting to me, but, but I couldn't quite, I still couldn't find it. Like I got to the end of the first draft and I couldn't find that thing. Um, and it was a very, very dispiriting feeling. And this is, I think, around the, the end of 2015 or the, the beginning of 2016. And um, so I put the novel aside, trying to, you know, thinking to myself, okay, I'll just give it a minute and, and um, see how to revise this, see, see whether in the revision this thing can be found. Yes. Um, and because I was so Wild West minded, I was listening to a lot of historical podcasts and um, uh, watching a lot of documentaries and just sort of trying to fill my head with it. And, um, so on a podcast, um, called stuff you missed in history class, um, they had this episode about something called the red ghost of Arizona. And they presented it as a true yarn of Arizona of the late 1890s. And, uh, at the center of the yarn, uh, which was told, I think, for something like 30 years. Um, there's these two women, they're on a homestead. It's um, evening, the men have gone somewhere. Um, the women are sisters, I think, in, in the original story when, when this really happened. Um, and 
one of them goes outside for whatever reason and has an encounter with a huge, horrifying four-legged apparition. And the other one watches from the window and like can't tell what it is. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a massive horse, and she just doesn't know what to make of it. And, and this thing um, has a violent encounter with her with her pal outside and runs off into the bushes and, and into you know and into history and myth of of the area. And then the. <laughs> The uh, the podcast went on to tie the yarn, to explain the yarn by tying it to the U.S. Camel Corps. And um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of how to, to frame this in a way where, where you'll know what I'm talking about, but I'm not giving away. So um, the condition of the encounter between these women and the apparition they saw in its entirety <laughs> um, was the thing that hooked me. Like I couldn't believe it. Like the journey of the journey of, of, of the apparition and yeah. the, the, um, the state of the women at home was the thing that, that made me curious. I wanted to know what their day had been like. And I wanted to know what the journey of this um, animal and writer had been to get yeah. to this place. Um, yes, and, yeah. And, and you sorry, go actually, because in what you just said, I think, Taya, you also said, I wanted to know what these women's, like, like what their day had been like. Yeah. Too. So, so that's interesting because then, um, because the book is working in, with this interesting structure where we're introduced to Nora, who becomes your, your female protagonist frontiers woman right um i guess female frontiers woman i'm a little, <laughs> a little repetitive there um but just to underscore it <laughs> um but but her this and then in the structure of the book um in the novel then you've you've got a a day like it's very um like time is moving in that way for for nora's part of the novel yeah but then we have the other character who we meet first Lori, and the time is very different. It's the mm-hmm. decades. How did you? So is that sort of what you were saying, Taya? That when you were originally, when this wouldn't let you go, these images or this f- curiosity, it felt like a day. Whereas maybe the other story, how the <laughs> the apparition got there, felt longer. Yeah, totally. And 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 it was sort of a. Um... Because then, the, the, you know, the, I, I wanted to encompass, like, I, I didn't know that I was going to write it. I just, I, I, I became intensely curious about it, and I started reading about the, the, the United States uh, Camel Cavalry and, 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 you know, what that was like and, like, who came over. And, like, there was very little information. But the more I read about it, the more it seized me. And, and it became clear that, like, this episode was so tied into so much of the history of the nation and, and, and nation building at that time in the Southwest, um, and yet never became part of its mythos. And so it was really clear that, that when I started writing that I was going to have to, that I was interested in all of that, right? Like this like totality. And then this like very specific, very, in this expansive world for Lurie and this really narrow world for, for Nora. Um, and, and so I think that to some degree, like history, history gave those time structures. Like it just, it, there was no, I tried several different ways of thinking about it because, you know, the minute you start 
writing in you know the, the minute you pick one time structure or the minute you you pick any kind of restriction you're like well what about all this other stuff like I could have done this or I could have you know um, and then when you when you whenever you doubt yourself you're like oh the problem is that I made a decision too early and like now I'm I'm trapped by this decision but there was there was really no I could find no other way to do it um, oh okay. and and it was it it it, it was just. Yeah, I think it was because it was so tied to the particulars of the history um, and and the pressure of, you know, um, I remember Angela Flournoy um, coming to, to, to visit my class at Hunter some years ago and talking about sort of having trouble writing loosely um, with, you know, sort of having trouble trying to trying to pin the character down because like everything was too loose and 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 she she essentially said put a clock on it like if you are if you can't hem this person in any other way put a clock on it and um and the pressure of a clock the pressure of a day running out um which in Nora's case is you know turns out to be super high stakes like there's this drought her husband's late with the water um, uh, there are all these things that have gone on in town that she's not a really processing very correctly because she's been thirsty for a long time. It's all coming down to this day. And as the, as the day wanes, she becomes less and less reliable and less and less able to like less and less reliable in her narration, but also less and less reliable in her ability to react to the information she's receiving from all around her. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, 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 and then, <laughs> and then leads to so many more. I would, um, <laughs> because it seems like this when you were saying put a clock on it. So that actually, I was going to ask you, does that, what does that translate to you? And and in this novel, it translates to a day for Nora. But is that? But I guess put a clock on it could mean any time, any time of like constraint. Yeah. That you just decide, and then it becomes part of the world of, of that novel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually there's like, there's a seek, I don't know how, I don't know how in depth to go into this. It, there's a secret clock inside it as well, which is that, and I, I didn't realize that there was a time constraint in, in Lurie's section two, but, um, between you and me or possibly between, well, I mean, I don't know if this is, well, people, you know, people won't know what this is if they don't, um, listeners if they haven't read it i'll try to say it in a way that isn't um all of um all of lurie's narration is taking place in while they're inside the house while the others are inside the house mm. he's narrating from that place so while marion crace is giving his speech lurie is giving his that's the that's the secret clock inside it Ah, yes. So this, so it's when you're finding these, uh, like you're when you're as the writer discovering this, Taya. Like this is because it feels like until you get to that discovery of what the the world of the novel that you've been building so far then demands, because um, there's like this kind of tension then for you mm -hmm. as you're drafting it. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's always the the, the the process of drafting is always um, a dance between what's 
self-evident and what is going to what's self-evident from the get-go and what is going to present itself as the solution or the problem to to to, to what's what what manifested before as you go along <laughs> um i think um and so yeah i think um there was a moment in the editing in the in the in the revision process where you know Lurie was talking to Burke um but it felt quite loose you know he was he was talking to Burke and 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 then I realized well actually he's talking to Burke because he's he's trying to get him to move and the reason he needs him to move is because this is the specific time point in which they're dwelling and their their time the the time of narration is is sitting inside you know is an easter egg inside the the larger time of this novel um and as soon as i realized that then it then it did all these other things to the narrative because it shaped what lurie could react to in the in in nora's section what had already happened you know who's down at the river who are we seeing um like what time of day is it what you know what has just happened at the riverbank in the evening all all this stuff and it had to be reframed uh so Lurie's section had to be reframed in the context of that too um and so and that is like part of the the revising part mm-hmm. that you that that you find so it's 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 lovely to hear your voice tail when you're talking about it because it's you can I feel like it's you can hear in your voice this it's almost the pursuit like you're almost remembering <laughs> what, it's, <laughs> what it's like like in those moments when you're you're drafting or and then revising and then in in the making of it yeah yeah I I am um, I do feel that way like when I I it, it's funny I think when when I wrote the Tiger's Wife. I was quite a bit younger, and 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 sort of, I was writing late at night, and I don't have very many memories of writing The Tiger's Wife. I I I, I it, it sort of feels very hazy to me. But because this, I was revising and revising and revising this novel until you know until my editor was like, "Give it over now," you know, and, and I was like, "Okay, this is it, I guess." Um, but. Um, but so it's it's fresh enough that I that I remember these moments of of like oh my god oh this is the solution you know and and because so much of it so much of writing I think for for me is sort of wandering around, um, with like wandering around in the dark with a really short beam, you know, like, <laughs> and and being like oh look a like a shiny object on the ground that's good like and trying to piece together this this bigger map but you can only see parts of it with your short beam and so you can only see whatever it is you're directly pointing at and then every so often a lightning strike you know a lightning crack goes off and like you're able to see the whole plane and then it all vanishes again and and so i i feel like it's recent enough that i remember the lightning strikes um and it gives me hope that like maybe this could happen again for another work someday. You know? <laughs> right, right. 
and it will obviously Taya obviously will let me just say that like before I move 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 away from that but um, because you're like because you're talking it seems like even in like those years where you said you you wrote like specifically two and a half novels one of them was a western with doctors um as you know the, the the main characters but but it was you were you were inhabiting this world and you were more um like in the like the part of your imagination that's let loose with the writing seems to be had been in a western for these years yeah and so even as you're talking about the writing process you're talking about it like you're out there in like the Arizona <laughs> territories or Wyoming or you know <laughs> right or, but so I guess the, like the whole plane is illuminated for a moment and you see it oh my goodness yeah no, you're right. <laughs> well, it makes me wonder then what is next? Do you think you'll stay? Because now being in Texas, this is giving like a whole, like a different kind of landscape, but still within this Westernness that, that you've been occupying or so. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's funny. I'm working on, um, I was working on a project before the pandemic hit and then um, this short story that I'd had on the back burner for, for a long time. I'd like to let a lot of things brew. Like, like it's, um, the, the hardest thing for me is getting attached to ideas and then, and then um, feeling that, they're, that they have legs enough to, 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 to have something actually made of them. Yes, um, yes. And so whenever there's an idea, it has a tendency to sort of sit there for a really long time, growing legs like some sort of weird dolly <laughs> contraption. I don't know where that, that, that the, the analogy, a doomed analogy began. Um, that's <laughs> no, it makes, it's the perfect visual. <laughs> I can see it. I bet all the uh, listeners, can you see it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for envisioning a row of, of long-legged ideas hovering on some sort of burner. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so, so I find myself now all of a sudden working on on, on two projects, um, and they're really different. One is sort of a, a desert island story, and 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 one is a, a collapsed city story, and um, they're both sort of set in this this sort of post calamity timeline that that um that I think we're all sort of um you know moving zombie like toward in, in our work you know there's 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 a lot of people like my students writers I know we're all sort of uh we're sort of reaching for that um <laughs> for that after the fall um time oh, <laughs> um yes. because because I think a panic is seizing us um it's just sort of existential dread of like oh uh, here it comes. Anyway, um, completely reasonable. <laughs> all of us together, um, and and um, yeah, they're very different um, to to inland, and and so they exist, I think, somewhere on on a on a scale of um, of the supernatural, somewhere between the tiger's wife and and inland. Um, and I, I have a feeling that what's going to happen is that these two things will be quite short um, and finished quite quickly. And in the meantime, probably another Western is, is going to be 
brewing um, because I can already feel like, as you said, I'm in Texas. I spent all of um, the, the early part of the quarantine in Wyoming um, and and I can feel it sort of stirring again, that that desire to write about the West and, and engage with the landscape from a different point of view or, or with, with a different concern, because of course, I think, you know, when you, there's, there's so, there's so much to write about. And one of the things about Inland was that because the whole book was, was premised on the final event being this meeting of two worlds, there was a, a, a huge limitation on how many stories could be brought in and what it could cover, you know, like it was really about these two lives colliding. And um, and while I was researching, there were so many lives I learned about and am still deeply interested in. And uh, I think it will be, I don't think I'm going to, to step away from that, that interest um, as time goes on. And, and it seems like an interest that you've had since you were a girl, like watching Westerns with your grandparents. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's such a, I mean, it's such a powerful mythology, you know, like when you, when you think about the fact that we, what we knew about America from images, from music, from film, art, all of it, um, everything, everything we knew about its, its, its history and its reality could still be dispelled by this, you know, um, this like single tracking shot of Monument Valley and, and riders in the dusk, you know, like, it's just so, it's so powerful. Um, and, uh, I mean, I I was a narrow story, very narrow story. And, and, and in so many ways, not real, you know, in some, in some ways real, but in many ways, not real. And, 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 um, I was surprised given what I, uh, you know, given what I knew about the American West, the true history of the American West and, and, and what I learned about it coming here, I was, I was surprised that, that my, what I consider to be my, my immigrant novel probably took, took the shape of a Western, um, because it's a, it's a genre with so many traps and limitations. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's origins are so insidious. Um, yes. Sorry. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, well and for, so could we talk about that for a moment? Sure. Matea, the, um, the, like the my immigrant novel took the shape of a western um is is this because we're talking about Laurie's story yes i think so and 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 you know the the stories of um i mean so much displacement made its way into the book you know Laurie is um He's an outlaw. Uh, he well, he's he's an immigrant who becomes an outlaw. He's um, and 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 this is this is sort of the amazing thing to me too. Just to go back to the to the true origins of, of the U.S. Camel Corps, I couldn't believe when I first read the read the uh, heard the initial story, I couldn't believe that um, the link between 
my new, you know, my new home and my old home in, 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 in these historical terms, because the camels were brought from the Ottoman Empire of the, of the mid 1800s. And um, the young men who came over with them um, had, had been, you know, belonged to the same empire where my home ground that my home ground was, was, was held by too. And so this, this mythos of um, being part of this vast, uh, uh, you know, overreaching historical and cultural entity that was that empire for so long um, permeated a lot of the stories that I, that I knew. And so when I, when I heard about, you know, Haji Ali and, and um, these young men coming over, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, like I can't believe that this is something that I don't know about. Like it's right there. Um, and also familiar in many ways. Totally, totally. And then, and, 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 um, you know, and then even just sort of thinking about the considerations of what, you know, we, we don't know very many things about Haji Ali, but we know that he, um, was born, uh, uh, to Christian parents that he converted to Islam sometime in his, um, late twenties and, and, um, adopted the name Haji Ali. And of course, when he came over here, everybody sort of lazily and, and stupidly called him Hajali. Um, <laughs> and that's what he's buried as, uh, which is, which is awful. Um, but, but he, um, you know, just sort of thinking about what it's like to have been an outsider to his religion before, you know, to be, um, the subject of an empire to whose central population you don't belong to try to go into that, um, center by, by religious conversion, by cultural conversion, and then to be displaced and to carry that conversion with you elsewhere where you, you're outside again, you know, like a lot of, a lot of the characters in this, um, book ended up being people on the periphery, you know, jolly, um, uh, Lurie himself, you know, he's, he's sort of on the, on the periphery of memory. He can't quite remember the language, but he knows when he hears Turkish being spoken, that there are some roots in it reaching into the things that he remembers from his childhood. Um, uh, Desma even is, is on the, on the periphery. She's an immigrant. Um, Ray Ruiz, her, her, her late husband has been displaced from, from his land and, and he's, um, of, of mixed origins in the, in the Southwest. And, and, um, there's, 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 I was surprised, I think by the research, I think the research that I did showed so much migration and so much, um, you know, carrying of one's culture, like this very precious talisman from place to place. And it, and it made me conscious of how ironclad the mythos of what it means to be American was in, even in old West times, you know? Uh, yeah. Because, because, well, Taya, are you, are you also saying that, for example, um, Haji Ali that are then known as <laughs> Hi Jolly or Jolly, like and Lori, they they were defining for themselves. Like even though they carried their old world, they were also very much a part of this of 
the West of America. And so they, they were like, they, they were the characters that are peopling the West that we don't necessarily see in the very tight myth. Yeah, absolutely. And to them, they were American as well as carrying the talisman. Like, I guess I'm not saying this very well. To themselves, (laughs) they were American as well as, as the other, as the outsider carrying the talisman of their, their past. They're both. I I think that they, I think that they're searching for that, for that center or like, or that sort of, um, I think that both of them are, are looking to make peace with that, like looking for a way to, to find that this is home, you know, and, and to, to, to be able to say to themselves, well, like, this is home now. And they, I don't know that either of them are quite able to do it. But I, I think that, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the book taught me that very few people, even at the time, could, you know, like, so most people were outsiders. <laughs> Um, and the, the, um, fraction of the, of the society on which this massive, massive myth of American identity was built was, was a sliver, you know, um, it was, it was, who was, who was sitting in the, in the, in the mayor's house and, and who were his pals and that's it, you know, and meanwhile, all this life went on. Um, all these people who were outsiders, considered themselves outsiders, had been pushed to become outsiders from their own land. Like, you know, just, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I got, I got, I yes, wandered no. down. <laughs> sorry. Yes. No, the, the multiplicities of identities that, that is the U S in the, in the West when you're writing about it in the 1890s. But it's it's today as well too, and yeah. almost this um, and kind of the danger of refusing that realization because it 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 is meant to be part of the 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 overarching U.S. myth, right? There are many, and we are we are coming, and then we are here, right? Exactly. <laughs> to come to the shores implies that you'd probably stay, right? <laughs> maybe, exactly. Maybe um, even move inland, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 yeah, yes. Taya, when with your with your family story, when when did you come to the U.S.? Um, I was twelve years old. Um, and this is 1997. So, and I already spoken, I mean, I had, I had been learning English, um, after we, after we left the former Yugoslavia and, and I had gone to English schools and, and, or English speaking schools, um, in Cyprus, sorry, Cyprus and in Egypt. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and so, um, one of the reasons that I, I began, one of the ways in which I learned the language was by writing these little stories in English, um, as a kid, that's how, that's how my relationship to writing has always been in English. That's what I was going to ask you, Taya. <laughs> so what were these stories like? And so you, so can we picture <laughs> Taya as 12 years old and were you in it? in Atlanta first or yeah we were we were in uh we were in a suburb of 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 Atlanta um actually when I said this 
at the Savannah Writers Festival um, last year, I got laughed out of the room because it turns out that um, Lawrenceville is not a suburb of Atlanta. It's just like a town on the outskirts of Atlanta. And, and, and I had sort of a, a misunderstanding of space. <laughs> well, get it right, Taya. Yeah, no. I mean, your your twelve year old mapping was like <laughs> was off. Somebody came up to tell me that, and I was like, "I'm sorry." Uh, I mean, it's like if you're you're lucky if you're twelve if you can get you know like a, a mile away on your bike, basically. Like, let alone like understand the relationship with the major city nearby. And when you're trying to convert from kilometers to miles, it's even more difficult. You know, it's just. How many kilometers from my house is one mile? Um, but it's <laughs> but but you wrote. So was writing. What was so? Yeah. What was writing for you in those times? Well, you're gonna laugh, but it was often little animal stories. I love it. Uh, it was. Um, it was. It was. It was sort of a lot of fables. Um, I was. I was an only kid. Um, when I was growing up and I, we still lived in sort of the golden age of, of figurines, like toy figurines. Um, and so I had these massive casts of characters um, who would play out these, um, you know, huge tableaus on, on the, on the uh, bedroom floor. And then this had to be sort of recorded. Right. So, so um I would I would write these brief terrible stories about you know animals having a bad day. Like the first thing the first thing I wrote was in Cyprus. I was eight years old. I um, I was only allowed to use the laptop, which was this massive, cumbersome, awful thing. Um, if I was doing something that approximated study, uh, and so I was allowed to write stories on it because that meant that I was learning the language. And I, I wrote a short story about a goat who had a very bad day. And then I went to my mom and I said, this is what I'm going to do. And my mother, who, um, you know, who's a, who's a, an, a economist, um, and <laughs> was like, okay, um, super, uh, this is like economist born of engineers, you know, just like, great. Um, but she, all, everybody was super supportive. <laughs> well, and, so, and this goat had a very bad day. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't remember. I just know that he had a bad day. Um, I know that I, I was interested in the, here are the reasons why I know that the story was about a goat who has a bad day. I remember that the liking the word goat, um, because the shape of the G was really interesting to me. Um, and still to this day, if I can write, if I'm, I'm the, the way that letters look on the page will often influence my word choice. This is a, this is a weird thing to admit. I've never said it and I'm trying to process it now. Um, like I, I like the look of certain words and if I can use that word instead of a word that whose appearance is slightly less appealing to me, I will do it every time. Um, and then I will reluctantly um, edit it if it needs to be changed. But the re the reluctant yeah. <laughs> so, so visual more than auditory. So are you also reading aloud or is it really, do you think, because what I was hearing a lot of your lines 
and thinking they were lovely lines. So it's so it's so interesting to hear that the visual is driving it so often. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a and I and I wonder sometimes whether I um, now that I've said it, I'm going to I'm going to notice myself doing it all the time. But um, but but it's um, I mean then you correct for music, right? And music can actually so I think there's all kinds of dangers in sentences. This is going to sound garbled. Um, I think when you're in a space where you're choosing your prose, the, for me, the visual can lead you astray, can lead you into untruths, but also the music can lead you into untruths. Yes. You know, like there have definitely been times when I've read back a sentence of mine that has been published and been like, this makes no sense. Like it, it sounds nice, but what is this? Like, that doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and I think that my, my battle, because I learned the language phonetically, because it's, um, my second language, um, because my interest in it is still sometimes feels to me sort of like I'm trying to grab it with both hands, you know, um, yes. I, I can feel myself, I, I'm trying to be more and more and more and more precise and narrow that down. Um, and you know, really check in with myself about like, are you saying, are you sure you know what this means? <laughs> um, but also though, Taya, what about, do you know what this means? But there's also something that a meaning that when you're making something that it can have that you don't understand even as the maker. That's true. That's really true. That's really true. And, 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 and yeah, I, I agree with your assessment of that. Like that you actually have to, you sometimes have to leave that open. Like trust it. But how do you know when to trust that and leave it open? Oh. <laughs> and uh, because what you were saying before is, is completely right as well. The, the danger to the sentence in, getting away into something that maybe doesn't have meaning. It's a, yeah, it's, gosh, that's a tough question. I think, I think if, if I can check in with myself and say, well, I know what this means. This makes sense to me. I can leave it. But sometimes like if you're a compulsive reviser, like I am, you will go over a sentence so many times that you don't, that you no longer see that it doesn't <laughs> mean anything or that it's got a, you know, there's a, um, there's a, there's a, a line in, in inland, um, which is just so incredible that like eight of us missed this, you know, I missed it. The, um, the, uh, fact checkers missed it. My husband missed it. Like we all missed it. Um, but, uh, the, the boat is coming around the corner. And to me, the music of the sentence was, um, the, 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 the line would end on the word stern. Now the stern is the back end of a boat, <laughs> the back end of a boat. And so, um, that is the truth, right? That is a fact. That word means back end of boat. 
and the music of it isn't like no matter how musical it sounds to my ear it's never going to change the fact that that is the back end of the boat um this was caught finally by a translator um who wrote in and was like this is a strange way for the boat to be coming down the river and it was only after that that i sort of clicked eight layers out of my relationship to the oh. sentence which had lasted for like two years right <laughs> and was able to say like oh this boat is coming down the river ass first like you know what i mean <laughs> like, like and and finally sort of wrote in and was like for the paperback can we have can we turn the boat around like make it prow you know like <laughs> and that sentence will never ever sound right to me like it will prow will never sound right it it just will it just won't because my relationship to the music of that sent that sentence is set for me like uh like you know like a poem that you learned and that's what it is um and uh, I I don't know where I bonded so 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 I think that you know there are definitely moments where you have to leave it and you're like this might not make perfect sense but there's also moments where you just you just go all the way down some sort of hole that you don't even realize and i i, I wonder if i wonder if that's a an effect of being um a, a non-native speaker you know what i mean like i i i don't know how other people's brains work with with the difference between within the context of the relationship like words as music or words as meaning <laughs> right right and and i think it would really it would just depend on who you speak to mm -hmm. probably in some ways and if people are um writers or artists they probably have a different a somewhat different relationship so even if it's um undefined <laughs> even for, to themselves <laughs> Yeah. yeah. When I was like doing some research, Taya, to talk with you today, I I love that you said that there's these three things that seem to be driving your writing right now. Not that, that it will always be that way, because I don't, I, I wouldn't mean to constrain you, but this idea of like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, maybe it's better if you say them. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, or is please, this like... please, please remind me so that I don't mess up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Okay, here's here's the awkward part of me like trying to paraphrase you back to No, this is great. This is great. So that, that you're interested and you're curious about things uh that people will do if they are by themselves and mm -hmm. you know no one's watching and they're they're living, they're doing. Um and then what people and then you're curious and interested in about things that people think um about the stories that they tell themselves about themselves yeah. and then how the third thing I think is something to do with how people do um, care for or attend to animals yes yeah <laughs> So what's my question in that? I guess is that. I guess yeah, I mean, as you're as you're speaking, I'm like, oh my god! Like one of my books is is about a a, a woman on a desert island in a in a in an animal care facility. Like it's it's, <laughs> it's just like oh god, um, uh, yeah, no, we are we are all prisoners of ourselves. You know, don't don't let them tell you any different. Um, I I, I think uh, no, I'm 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 very interested in those things, and I and I think that that even to say interested. <laughs> clearly isn't strong enough it's just like i'm innately drawn by some weird magnet um to these to, to to these stories to the stories that 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 deal with this um and um 
you know, solitude. I, I, I'm curious. I'm going to say something now and I don't even know if it's true. It's musical though. So no, um, I, 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 uh, I, I'm, I wonder if there are forms that I, I don't know that there are, there are many forms that can enter into an individual's solitude the way, um, the written word can. Everything about it has to do with solitude. You're engaging with a consciousness that's not your own. Uh, as the writer, in order to create the consciousness, you have to leave that consciousness, uh, you have to leave your own consciousness and go into that other consciousness and, and um, you know, delve in it in the way that you delve in yourself, you know, the, your own, create its responses the way your own responses shape you and, and, and that's all solitude. And then when it's finished, the reader presumably shares this experience, goes in, you know, uh, feels the solitude of, of the characters that you're writing as creations on a page. And then moreover is, is alone in this experience. Like you don't, you rarely read with some, it's not a communal experience. It's all solitude. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think, hmm. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very interested in what people say to themselves in those spaces. The stories you tell yourself about how something went, um, the truth you shape for yourself in that solitude, and then the kind of person you emerge as um, after you've done all these things, you know, um, presumably while taking care of an animal. I. <laughs> Presumably, clearly, clearly, was taking care of an animal. How could you not? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're hopefully not monsters, because <laughs> it's so clear when you say, "and the kind of person like you, like what you just described is this this existential journey um, that that we all, uh, writer or not, artist or not, reader or not, like we are all." this is like part of the, the human journey, right? And whether you reckon with what you emerge as from that solitude, I don't know. Can you really? escape that reckoning? I think you can escape that reckoning, but the people around you can't, you know? Um, I think if, if, if you're the kind of person who, Um, refuses to reckon with self the people around you will be made to suffer uh, uh, or, or, or be made to reckon with it down the line in some, in some way that, that, that is not their obligation <laughs> you know what I have loved talking with you today Taya I, I feel like our conversation has gone way beyond the the world of inland that you've given to us with your novel. I'm so um, sorry. I <laughs> just like wander down the road. This is a good thing. But like, even the thing that you just said then makes me think of our political moment and our, our, our American cultural moment happening now. Like when we have to think about what is this, this myth of America, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? What, um, and, and who, who we're reckoning with, 
right now yeah. our, ourselves but our leaders um yeah and what stories are we going to tell about this time Taya? it's it's really true and i and i think that this moment is um is is the way that this pandemic has panned out i'm trying to think I, I, i'm trying to think of an articulate way to to, to put this um it's a microcosm of, of, of these bigger questions, um, questions of, of nation. Our, our nation is so invested in the idea of selfhood, right? I'm a self-made person. Um, grandpa came here with nothing and look what he made. He was a self-made man. This, this, this idea of an individual as an, as an island, um, and uh, uh, an independent force working against a current that that is absolute. But but, but um, and these are you know these are the stories that that we have celebrated for so long, and 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 they you know their their tendencies to be white male um, heteronormative cisgender. You know they they we 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 know this. But um, we, we, we are beginning now, I think, finally in, to ask, even in just the, the framework of this pandemic, like, my, I am an individual, I may carry a virus. What is the harm I'm going to do if I step outside and go to the, you know, like, go to the grocery store? And, and um, these, these questions of individual responsibility in harm I think are, are beginning to dominate our conversations. Um, and that's a good thing because we, <laughs> we haven't had them for way too long. Um, the idea of you, you can't be an individual swimming against a current and not leave a wake around you. What wake are you leaving? And how can you minimize the harm of that wake um, as, a, as a member of the species, you know, um, as a member of a nation, as a, as a, as a, as a participant in a society? Um, I think that that is what we're being asked to reckon with in the context of this pandemic. But it's, 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 a, it's such a larger... It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for our larger conversation, you know, um, about what human life or, or civic life or national life, um, is supposed to do on this earth. Um, I'm sorry. I, Thank you. Some dark place. <laughs> no, <that was laughs> I think I pushed us there, Taya. <laughs> probably no, no, no. We, we needed we needed Burke, Burke. <laughs> you know, look after your animals as well <laughs> well and there I was going to say I can tell that part of like when you were talking about the desert island and like this 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 not like the or the short story that you've been working on yeah. it's like then these are the metaphors that we've just been with too with the current and so oh my god you're so right oh geez the next one I think will be a desert island novel. 
Um, I think we're I think we're right on that. We're you're right on the money with that current. I think. Oh well, well, brilliant. Taya Albrecht, I have loved talking with you today. Likewise. Today on Living Writers, Taya Albrecht, her novel Inland is what we've been talking about. And we've been talking about things that have come from that. And, I was going to say, is it, is it what we... <laughs> and, the things, and the things that we're looking to the future for. <laughs> Thanks, Taya. Thank you so much. Taya Abret was born in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia and grew up in Cyprus and Egypt before eventually immigrating to the United States. Her debut novel, The Tiger's Wife, won the 2011 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a 2011 National Book Award finalist and an international bestseller. Her second book, Inland, was an instant bestseller and a finalist for the 2020 Dylan Thomas Prize. Starting this fall, she will be serving as Endowed Chair of Creative Writing at Texas State University in San Marcos. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Taya Albrecht. I'm T. Hetzel. It is Wednesday, the 21st of October, and you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 FM. You are listening to currently the Daily Sports Report. My name is Joshua Tenzer, and alongside me are... Eric Rodakovich and Ryan Buckman. I hope I pronounced both of those correctly. Buckman, it's Buckman. I know that. Oh man. Well, let's do right. it. <laughs> How are you boys doing? Fantastic on a Tuesday. No, it's yeah. just yeah. feels like every other day, but <laughs> just a tad different. Just one step closer to that great day, the twenty-fourth of October. Big Ten football is returning. Michigan coming in against, I want to say, Minnesota, in Minnesota, Minneapolis. You guys excited? There's like an energy in the air. I'm excited, and I think it's because there's a lot of unknown so far, so I'm kind of you know, anxious and excited at the same part because I kind of want to find some good things happening with this team this year that are very weren't there yet last year i would say i guess i guess it had to do mostly with the offense i thought last year but then again the Ohio state game was an anomaly for the defense so hopefully the defense is able to uh, fill in some pieces that they lost because they lost a lot of pieces there and i think uh guys like quitty pay and uh aiden hutchinson are gonna definitely be able to fill it definitely help i think some new people able to fill in those spots but I also think the offense with Joe Milton starting, probably going to end up starting at quarterback is what I'm guessing. Even though it hasn't been announced yet, but I'm guessing that's what it is. He's going to hopefully light it up and have one of the first uh, big seasons of any Michigan quarterback, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, he's definitely going to be the X factor for this team. I mean, 